Well, good morning again. My name is Pastor Milo. I'm so glad you're here with us this morning. It's a brisk morning, a little bit chill in the air. Fall is here. Uh, it's just a neat time of year. I don't know if you're someone who really enjoys uh, being able to go out on Friday night and sit by the campfire, that type of thing, but that's just something I've always enjoyed. This time of year is just kind of a special time of year. On our street um, this week, some of the Halloween decorations uh, went up, and our son, who is uh, five years old, he started kindergarten this year, is now a reader. And so last year, he wasn't a reader, but this year he's a reader. And so he goes down the street on his bicycle and comes back, and he said, Dad, there's, there's a sign down there that says, and he did it this way, enter if you dare. <laughs> and. And he said it that for whatever reason, he lowered his voice. I don't know why he did that or in his little squeaky voice. He lowered it as well as he could. Enter if you dare. And all of a sudden, my son, Elias, is now goes by the house, the same decorations that were there a year ago, and he tells me, Dad, I, that's scary. That's a spooky house. It wasn't a spooky house last year, but now that he can read the sign, enter if you dare, like he's worried about the house. So, interestingly enough, last week, if you were here with us last week, we were uh, in our same sermon series, and, and I was talking to you about the book of Proverbs, and we had all of our kids were in the service, and, and I used as an illustration to open things up. I asked the kids, I said, kids, how many of you like to collect things? And then I talked about how King Solomon liked to collect all of the different things that he liked to collect. And all of you as parents, the thing that went in your minds that I couldn't say last week because we had all the kids in the service was that what? Solomon collected wives and women. But what I said last week was he liked to collect books and wise sayings, and that is true as well. This morning we're going to go in a different direction, and there are some things that some of you like to collect, and they're not so specific as books or Proverbs or information, uh, when we talk about this time of year and we talk about what's going on around us, some of you actually like to collect fears and phobias and things to be nervous about. So if I come up here this morning and tell you all the different reasons why I'm afraid of, of spiders and I tell you all of those reasons, you'll walk out and you say, you know what, I'm afraid of spiders too. And Elias rides his bicycle down the street and sees the neighbor and he sees all of the house that's decorated, and it says, enter if you dare, and he's now collected a phobia or a fear of that house for really no reason. But we're going to talk this morning, we're going to open up your Bibles, if you will, to Proverbs. Uh, if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, Proverbs chapter 3 is on page 666, interestingly enough. Proverbs chapter 3. Look down the aisle to your right and to your left, count off four people. On your mark, get set, count off four people. If you've got them, you have to look down the aisle a little bit. All right, you're number five, you're the fifth person. So here's what our stats would tell us, that one in five of you will experience some form of clinical anxiety at some point in your life. So that's one in five, that's 20% of us will experience some form of clinical anxiety. So a study that was published in the Journal of Psychiatric Research said that there's a ratio of 1 to 1.7, the 1 being men and the 1.7 being women, meaning that women are almost twice as likely as men to experience this anxiety. So of that 20%, there's 1.7 uh, who are women to the 1, 1 that are men. 
This study also looked to see if there's any racial bias or if there was any connections to uh, racial minorities or coming into that type of thing. And they found that women who were coming from a European descent had a higher rate of suffering than those who were not uh, from suffering from an anxiety disorder. That means almost every anxiety disorder out there, women are more likely to suffer it than men. Other than social anxiety, that one's actually 50% men, 50% women experiencing that. But then even within social anxiety, the difference between men and women, the interesting thing there is that women experience anxiety of all sorts in different ways, meaning it is more disabling for a woman than it is for a man. One in five, 20%, that means roughly speaking in our congregation this morning, 20% of, of this room, that means 40 to 50 people in this room will experience some type of clinical anxiety in their lives. I have to stop here because some of you uh, are growing more anxious as I've opened up this sermon to be able to talk about some of these things. I have to tell you that this sermon, uh, this sermon series, this book of Proverbs was begin, we began planning it back in January of this year. Some of you are going back through the conversations you had with people at church this week uh, or even with myself and you're saying, I wonder if he's preaching this sermon because of the conversation we had earlier this week. I want to kind of set those to the side and help you realize that this is something that affects many, many people uh, and so uh, it is something that we are dealing with here this morning because we believe that this topic is applicable, applicable to our lives today. And when we look at the book of Proverbs, we see some, some truths that we want to pull out this week. So we are in this sermon series called Tough Choices. It is coming out of the book of Proverbs. We're using Proverbs as a launching point in many ways for some of these topics. Uh, if you haven't begun yet, we'd still would love for you to read through the book of Proverbs with us. This is a six-week series. Well, this is our fourth Sunday in the series. We've got two more to go, and you could finish the book of Proverbs with us uh, before we finish. Uh, Proverbs is wisdom literature. We've talked about this just to remind you of the genre that we're in. It's a different genre. It's a different type of writing, and so it is this collection of truths of the day. Uh, Solomon is the king who, who authorized this and collects all of these things. He prays to God for wisdom. He says, help me find wisdom. Help me find how to take the knowledge and the information of this day and sift it through in a way, just like when we put coffee grounds in a coffee maker, sift it through so that what comes out at the end is something useful to me. That's what uh, King Solomon does. We are reminded that Proverbs are the general rule. He writes other lit wisdom literature as well. Ecclesiastes deals with kind of the exceptions to the rule. The book of Job is also, and Job is an exception to the rule where you have someone who is living a godly life and yet things are not going well for him. And so he's an exception to the rule. When it comes to emotional health, when it comes to mental health, we do have examples in Scripture to look at. Uh, in this line of kings, we have King Solomon, who is uh, the author of the book of Proverbs, but his father is King David. And one of the tactics that King David used as a warrior is he was going, he was, he was running from the enemy. He actually hunkered down in a city and, and pretended to be uh, mentally disabled, where he said the spittle was in his beard. He acted out of his mind, and so they left him alone. They didn't worry about him being there as a combatant because they knew that he had this mental illness, so they thought. The 
King previous to him was King Saul. King Saul was tormented uh, by different uh, disabilities that came along the way. And so he has this while we learn about King David or previously just the boy David who was coming and playing music to King Saul to try to soothe him and to help him through what seems very much like a schizophrenic attack that he has at different times. We read in our scriptures about King Nebuchadnezzar uh, who loses his mind for a season and goes out and is eating grass and, and clawing at his own body and, and doing damage to himself because of mental illness. We see it in scripture and it is not always positive, but because we see it in scripture, we also see how to deal with anxiety. Today we're going to talk about emotional health, but we're going to talk specifically about anxiety because anxiety is an epidemic in our society. It's everywhere and it's in the church. And unfortunately, here in the church, for one reason or another, there's a lot of shame and misunderstanding around anxiety, especially in the church. So what I want to do this morning is we're going to break down hopefully some of the misunderstandings. We're going to give some voice to what happens in Scripture and what we read here and some of the things that are actually hidden here within our church and our churches. I want to ask you this morning to be discerning here as we kind of go through this topic because uh, some of the things we're going to talk about in this message is going to directly apply to 20% of the room. It is very specifically and directly going to apply to the 20% in the room who struggle directly and suffer with anxiety disorders. And then there's going to be 80% of the room who don't have this struggle, who are not battling with this day in and day out. But I want to appeal to you on a personal level to understand that these are the things that are happening around you, things that you're not talking about, but you need to be listening to and listening for signs of, because although it may not apply to you, there may be someone in your life or in this church that this applies directly to. And just as we are told in other ways to learn compassion for our brothers and sisters, we need to learn compassion in this area as well. If it's a lifetime struggle that you have, there are specific phobias that fall into the anxiety spectrum, which is why I'm just using anxiety as a general term this morning. Phobias of animals or fears of heights or confined spaces, you name it, there's a phobia out there. Social anxiety is something I've already talked about this morning. PTSD is an anxiety disorder. Bulimia is an anxiety disorder or anorexia nervosa. So these are all anxiety-related disorders, and there are things that are applied here because of anxiety. Depression falls within this. It's linked as well. It's not that everybody who experiences anxiety experiences depression, but there is a link. And those who are experiencing this on a clinical state are, are understanding that what they, they are experiencing they know are not logical thoughts. What they're experiencing they know cannot be reasonable, and, and they can't stop themselves, however, from thinking about these damaging thoughts. So we need to start and step back with a, a truth, a very simple truth, and here it is. Every single one of us has experienced anxiety. Every single one of us has experienced anxiety because anxiety is an emotion and it is something that we do experience. Again, there's 20% of you who know this really, really intimately and personally. 
Without going into much of the details, if you are a guest with this morning, if you haven't been around very long, uh, about a year ago, our family walked through this very specifically, where one of our children had to be hospitalized because of something related to uh, anxiety, just an overwhelming control of anxiety. And so we are walking through that as a family. Uh, I am learning, we are learning as a family some of the reasons behind this. And so I believe that it gives us reason to begin together there today. But know that each one of us deals with this. It's not specific to my family or my situation. So if you've got a white sheet of paper that came in your bulletin for you this morning, I want to give you the first fill in it that takes us there to the book of Proverbs that kind of sets the tone for us today. While we know that anxiety is very real, I need to start there, kind of set the baseline, understand anxiety is a real thing. We cannot wish it away. We cannot assume that it is not happening around us, that this is all fabricated or all made up. We see it in Scripture. We see ways to combat it in Scripture. Anxiety is very real. But worry doesn't have to be a constant struggle. While we know anxiety is very real, worry doesn't have to be a constant struggle. Open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Proverbs chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. Proverbs chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. If you remember, King Solomon has organized his thoughts in chapters 1 through 9. He is writing very personally to his son or a group of young men that he's training. Uh, 10 through uh, 29, he is, he's gathered other teachings that he brings to us. And then chapters 30 and 31, he gives us real specific examples of the, uh, of the life of different leaders and the way that we see that acted out. So this is coming specifically from King Solomon to his son or to a young group of men. My son, do not let wisdom and understanding out of your sight. Preserve sound judgment and discretion. They will be life for you. They will be an ornament to grace your neck. Then you will go on your way in safety, and your foot will not stumble. So if we stop right there, we want to uh, just, just baseline start right there, we, we could actually draw a conclusion that is not being made here. It means, that is there a logical solution to every problem? Does this mean that we've got nothing to worry about? Because if we have wisdom and understanding, then we can go on our way safely and our feet will not stumble. All we have to do is understand all the details of what are going on and we won't have anything to worry about. You see, anxiety is an emotional and sometimes physical response to some imprecise or unknown threat. This means that we have a vague awareness or apprehension that something is not quite right. Uh, We get anxious and our mind starts to warn us about the possible dangers that are out there. Very simply, if you start walking down here in the church, it will happen to many of us that are on staff or leadership here, all the lights are off in the building and all you have to do is go from this end of the hallway to the other end of the hallway and the door to safety and your vehicle is there. But as you walk down the hallway, what happens? You start to hear things. You start to notice shadows that are moving. You start to hear squeaks, and your mind just alerts you of all the possibilities of who is waiting for you behind that door and is going to jump out at you and nibble on your ear. And it all starts to come up. Mothers, mothers, you were built for anxiety. From the first moment, I remember this clear as day, and I've learned over the years that this is not specific to our situation, but when that first child of yours is born, when that new baby comes into the world and all the beautiful things that happen with that and all the excitement, all the emotion, mothers, what you do, what's the first thing that you do? You go, oh no, what have we done? This baby has to be taken care of. 
Who's going to take care of this baby? How are we going to make sure that they don't get hurt? How are we going to make sure? And the list just is long, and all that anxiety overwhelms a mother in that first moment. Wait a few years when that child begins school, and the mothers, uh, and, and uh, I wish I could remember what one of the elementary schools calls it, when they bring all of the, the mothers in who have just dropped off their kindergartners and pull them off to the side and say, just get away from your kids for a minute. And they serve them breakfast, and a boohoo breakfast, that's what it was called. They call it a boohoo breakfast. And they bring all the mothers to the side and just say, hey, we know you're going through something here. All the anxiety and the worry of what's going to happen? Will they make the right decisions? Will, 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 they, will they be okay? Will they be okay for these four or five hours without me? What are they going to do? And some of the mothers are concerned of, will the classroom survive my child? And then you send your kid away to a week of camp, and you, you have the same emotions, the same time. How, how is this kid going to be able to survive a week away from me, the child care provider? How will this work? Same tears, same emotions, same anxiety. It all builds up. And then the next layer that I haven't experienced yet, but many of you have, is when you decide that it's time for that child to get behind the wheel of a car. And this is where I think now we're talking about a 50-50 anxiety split. Men, women, it's the same. If you're going to get in the passenger seat of the vehicle with a child at the wheel, that's a nerve-wracking experience. How are we going to keep her safe? How is she going to make the right? All of that anxiety, all of that worry. Look what happens here in verse 24. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Have no fear of sudden disaster or the ruin that overtakes the wicked, for the Lord will be at your side and will keep your foot from being snared. Again, he started teaching us and showing us here uh, that if we have wisdom and if we have understanding, that we will then be able to have our steps in order. But then he goes on to acknowledge the fact that it's a scary place out there, that anxiety will begin to overwhelm and anxiety will take over. But he says, you don't have to be afraid when you lie down. Your sleep can be sweet. You don't have to stare at the ceiling all night long. Sudden disaster or ruin may overtake you, but it may not, and you don't have to be concerned about it for the Lord is at your side, and He will keep your foot from being snared. And for 80% of the people in this room, you track along with that just fine. Because you can reasonably process through things to be able to say, I know that the boogeyman is not waiting for me behind that corner. I know that it's just shadows, and I can just move through this hallway in a normal and practical manner. However, for 20%, That mechanism we have when anxiety and fear starts to take over, that mechanism we have that is a fight, flight, or flee mechanism. No, fight, flight, or freeze. I said the wrong one. There's a lot of Fs that go with that. So when when bad things happen that you have an instinct to do something, for 20% of you, the issue lies deeper. We've learned over the years that I have a genetic disorder in in my family that is a vasovagal reflex. What that means is that I cannot very easily get a shot or anything uh, having to do with a shot or anything having to do with a syringe around me, that type of thing, because if it goes into my arm, I have a vasovagal reflex. What that means is that my body just says, oh no, and it turns everything off. Literally, my body thinks that it's going to die, and so it shuts off every 
everything in my body except for the brain and the heart. Protect the brain, protect the heart. Protect the brain, protect the heart. And it shuts everything else off. And I've learned that it's a genetic disorder because I literally threw my sister a frisbee in the front yard. She caught it, jammed her finger, and her body went into a vasovagal reflex, and she dropped to the ground, passed out. Her body said, protect the brain, protect the heart, protect the brain, protect the heart, and turned everything else off, catching a frisbee. This is a genetic disorder. It's something that, it doesn't affect us in most ways in life, but it is something particularly for my sister. She said, is this going to happen to me? I was there with her at the doctor when we, we went in to make sure she was okay. She said, is this going to be something that's going to happen on my wedding day? Is this going to be something that is going to happen uh, when I try to give childbirth? What, how, how will this thing affect me in my life? And it's, it's a reflex, and there's not much that she can do about it. Protect the brain. Protect the heart. Your next fill-in is this. We must prioritize, pursue, and guard the heart above all else. We must prioritize, pursue, and guard the heart above all else. Proverbs chapter 4, probably across the page for you. Verse 20 says this, my son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Wake up. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Everything you do flows from the heart. Very specifically speaking, when it comes to where is a person's heart, where is their, you're talking about someone's intellectual capacity of where their heart is. You're talking about someone's emotional capacity, where is your heart. You're talking about someone's volitional capacity, or what is it that their hopes and their dreams or their motivations are, or their moral capacity. At the end of the day, what is it that they believe in? What truths and values do they hold on to? It is the top priority. Guard your heart. If you're dealing with a family member or you yourself are the family member who's going through uh, an anxiety crisis, remember to guard the heart above all else. I've shared with you many times that as a kid I worked at a camp near here called Circle C Ranch and I was, a, I was a cowboy there. I was a wrangler. It was an exciting thing. But one of my friends, so every summer we had uh, something called Friends and Family Day, where you invited all alum, alumni to come out, and it's a great recruiting tool. The, everyone comes out and sees the place, and now they've got kids. They say, you know what? I'm going to send my kids here as well. And so you've got this big Saturday where a, a few hundred extra people that you don't normally have at the camp are there at the camp, and, and kids are really good at obeying the rules, but parents, adults were terrible at, at following the rules and paying attention. One of my best friends at camp was one of the lifeguards there at camp. And so, uh, while I was out taking people for rides on horses, he was there watching the pool. And what he had that particular year was a situation where he had all the kids were in the pool. They all follow the rules really well. Parents don't follow the rules so well. And so, what ended up happening was this dad, this father, was there in the three-foot pool with his son. And his son starts tugging on his shoulders. And what's happening is dad was laying face down in the water, playing dead in the water. And his little son starts getting more and more nervous, more and more afraid. And most people around the pool 
People are looking saying, I don't think there's anything wrong. I think the dad is just playing with his kid. But the longer that it goes on and the more scared that the kid gets, what does my friend the lifeguard have to do? He has to blow his whistle and say, okay, everyone get back. Everybody out of the pool. Everybody out of the pool. And then dad is still floating and bobbing on his face in the water. And the lifeguard is saying, this is nuts. This is crazy. This is just a dad bobbing in the water, I think. What does he have to do when he has to prioritize above all else? He dives in, grabs a hold of the father, stands him up in three feet of water to the father's own embarrassment of everybody at the pool staring at him. He's perfectly fine, but he had to be rescued that day. Friends, if we're going to prioritize, if we're going to pursue, if we're going to guard the heart, it must be our first instinct. It must be our first response to guard the heart, prioritize the heart. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is it has, you might be looking at the situation and saying, I think everything's okay. I, things are a little bit off. It seems like my child or my friend has this uh, an anxiety thing going on. It seems difficult or I think that there might be something going on inside of me. And if we do not prioritize it, the other end of the spectrum is disaster. Is disaster. We must respond. We must prioritize the heart. It is the top priority. It is the very responsibility for you as a parent, for you as a family member, for you looking and doing a self-assessment, a self-check. If you're a close friend, if you are a small group leader, if you're in this room this morning, you are one of our elders in the church. If you are one of our key leaders in the church, if you are a Sunday school teacher, if you are a groups director, if you are one of the kids uh, directors who are teaching on a Sunday downstairs, you've got to understand our first priority is the heart. Our first priority must be the heart. So how do we do that? Here's your next fill-in. A good friend or a good teacher or a good elder or a good sister or a good brother, good father, good mother, a good friend will bring good news and soothing joy to the anxious heart. There's two verses, Proverbs chapter 12 and Proverbs chapter 15. Anxiety will weigh down the heart, but a kind word cheers it up. Anxiety weighs down the heart, but a kind word can cheer it up. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 30 says, Light in a messenger's eyes brings joy to the heart. Good news gives health to the bones. We're talking about emotional health here. Good news can bring health to the bones. Through, through your whole body, all different facets of your body, good news can bring health. This is a documented fact, friends, of uh, having a smile, having laughter, having joy in a hospital situation actually improves the health of people. Light in the messenger's eyes. You don't always know what to do. I understand that. You don't always know how to respond. I understand that. Just be there. Just be there. If you have a friend going through a crisis, an emotional crisis, so you have a friend going, they've lost a loved one, they're dealing with grief. I'll tell you from experience that grief is a weird thing and it hits you at all the weird hours of the night and it hits you at different times you would never expect it. But even so, if you don't know how to help someone through that, the best thing you can do is just be available. You don't have to have all the answers. 
You don't have to, to, to know exactly what to say or say the right thing or share the right thing. You can sometimes just be a huge help in any of those situations, anxiety, other things. You, you can just be a huge help by just changing the subject, by, by pulling the attention and the focus somewhere else. Specifically along those lines, really, if someone is in the middle of some type of anxiety attack, the, the time to talk about that anxiety attack is not in the middle of the anxiety attack. You're not going to have a real conversation about that or anything else. The time to, to talk to someone about how their mood is or, or maybe the depression that they're going through is not in the moment that they are at their lowest state. Why don't you just be there for that moment and come back later? Our counselor talked to us and, and we'll share with you as well, of just when you're dealing with a child particularly who is going through some type of anxiety attack, the illustration that was given to us was that, that if you can imagine your whole, you, you're on fire, your whole body's on fire, and what are you told to do? You're told to stop, drop, and roll to respond to a fire. Sometimes it's very much like that when, when anxiety is an overwhelming sensation that, that covers you and it's all, it, no, you can't think about anything else. So you feel like you're on fire and someone wants to talk to you about whether you turn in your homework or not. And we can't process that at the same time. What do you have to do first? You have to put out the fire. You have to deal with that first because you're not going to be able to process the other. It says here in Proverbs chapter 15, light in a messenger's eyes will bring joy to the heart and good news will give health to the bones. Are you a person who brings joy into the room when you come into the room? Are you a person who can bring health to the bones? Can you focus on the positives? Can you focus on the growth, focus on the things that are going well rather than focusing on the negatives? Can you focus on the wins? Can you bring joy? I'm telling you this very specifically for myself. This is very difficult for me to make sure that I am bringing joy to the room when I come into a difficult situation. This is something that doesn't seem to come naturally. When anxiety weighs down the heart, but a kind word will cheer it up, anxiety weighs down the heart and Milo will push it down even farther. A good friend, however, will bring good news and soothing joy to an anxious heart. Here's your next fill-in. You won't always have the power to control, but you will always have the power to surrender. You won't always have the power to control, but you will always have the power to surrender. Will you turn over to the New Testament, Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6. This is Jesus talking. He is teaching as part of the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, therefore I tell you. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body or what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Now, as I look out at you this morning, some of you are comfortable in some really nice clothes. Like some of you just love being well-dressed. Some of you ladies, you've got 65 pairs of shoes in your closet, and you just, you want to be dressed to the T's. What are you most comfortable in, friends? Are you a fashion guru? Are you someone who is a neat freak? Are you someone who's proud of the fact that you're a slob and you wear a t-shirt everywhere you go and that's a, that's a badge of honor? What, what does it come back to? It says, don't worry about your life, what you eat or drink, about your body or what you will wear. Why not? Look at the birds of the air. 
They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father will feed them. Aren't you much more valuable than they? Can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? Or some of your translations saying a single cubit to your height or single inch to your stature. How many of you have kids who wish that they were an inch taller than they are right now? How many of you wish that you were an inch taller than you are right now? Yeah, there you go, right? How good is it going to do for you to worry about, I wonder if I've grown an inch taller. I wonder if I've grown an inch taller. It's not going to change anything. Why does God address these issues specifically? Why does he talk about food and talk about clothing? He doesn't talk about success in the business world. He doesn't talk about success in the land or the property or the home that you buy. He doesn't talk about success in the grades that you're going to get in school or your GPA that you have in college. He doesn't talk about the success of whether you win the sport that you are most excited about or whether you get a Division One degree, a Division One scholarship. He doesn't talk about the difficulty of finding a spouse and how important that is. Why? Because he can handle it all. And he talks about food and clothing because he is the supplier of all things, even the simplest form. Realize that I am not God is what the first step towards recovery and celebrate recovery or any of the 12-step program. You have to begin at this point, surrender. Realize I am not God. I am powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong thing and my life has become unmanageable. And if you're on the outside looking at someone who is in the middle of recovery or looking at someone with an anxiety problem, if you're that 80% looking over them and saying, yeah, your life has become unmanageable, be careful, friends, because this passage in Matthew chapter 6 was not written to the 20%. This is written to each and every one of us. Realize that I am not God. I am powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong thing or try to control things. My life is unmanageable without God. Here's the second thing that you would have to do if you start in recovery. You have to believe in this. Earnestly believe that God exists, that I matter to Him, and that He has the power to help me recover. Here's the third step. Consciously choose to commit all of my life and my will to Christ's care and control. Those sound really good for some people. Those sound good for maybe the 20%. Do you understand, friends, that we must all surrender ourselves before God? Why? Because worrying will not add a single hour to our life. Planning will not add a single hour to our life. Being a great budgeter is not going to add a single hour to your life. None of these things matter. It is only in surrender to a holy God that we have another day here. So what happens when we take a step back, when we refocus, when we realize where we really stand before God? Here's your last fill-in. Worry fades away when we refocus on Him. Worry fades away when we refocus on Him. This comes from Philippians chapter 4. So you want to turn over a few pages there. Philippians chapter 4 says this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will what? Guard your hearts, there it is, and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
You see, at the end of the day, whether it's clinical anxiety or whether it's just regular, everyday, normal, run-of-the-mill anxiety, anxiety is an alarm bell signaling us to pray. Anxiety is an alarm system going off saying, you need to be in prayer. Why? Because the devil, the enemy, shouts lies. But God whispers truth. Do you remember? Do you remember when the prophet is searching after God and he is waiting and he hears the storm go by and he hears noises and he hears all these loud things, but it is the whisper of his voice that Elijah hears God's voice. Guard your hearts. Jesus tells Peter in John chapter 21. He says, if I want him, and he's talking about one of the other disciples, if I want him to remain until I return, what is that to you? Follow me. You follow me. A lot of times we get in a mindset that says we've got to control everything. We've got to keep all of, all of the, the plates spinning all at once. And Jesus is telling us, what does that matter to you? I'm in control of those things. You are not. You follow me. And there's the same author the Apostle Peter who writes in 1 Peter chapter 5 and says, cast all your anxieties or all of your cares on him because he will care for you. What my hope is this morning is that we spent some time talking about anxiety, that it would, it would take a step back. Maybe it wouldn't be so taboo here in the church, here in our church that won't be wrapped up in shame and misunderstanding because we do see anxiety, we do see worry in Scripture. Not every situation that we're up against is a spiritual battle when it comes to anxiety. There are physiological things that we're, we're dealing with when it comes to anxiety and anxiety issues. Our church ought to be a safe place for people who are wrestling with this struggle of anxiety and concern. There's a place where they feel like they belong. A place to know that they or you can find help and you can find help for the struggle and you are not alone in the struggle. Part of anxiety is this fear that everyone else in the room is fine and I'm the only one who's struggling with this. That's the root of anxiety. You're not alone. As we look out, as we think about this church, and there's, there's plenty of you who may not be struggling with these things specifically. But it is the appropriate way and a caring way that you can be caring for and aware of the needs of those around you and help them when they need it most. So this morning, we have a time of communion, a time of coming to the table together. Worship team, if you'll come forward. The attendees for communion, if you'll come forward. Some of you were here last week and say, we just did communion last week. Yes, we know. We did that last week as a, as a training tool, a reminder to be able to teach our kids in the next generation, this is what we believe in, these are the things that we value. But when we come to the communion table this morning, I want to remind this morning that we are coming to the communion table as a place of surrender before a holy God. Jesus says about the other disciples, he said, if I want him to do something else, what's that of you? You follow me. On the front of this table, it's covered in cloth right now. It says, this do in remembrance of me. He's talking to each of us. This is your responsibility. This is your call. Today we begin with surrender. As Jesus modeled for us in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
When he was, he was worried, he was anxious, what he was looking at, what he was standing for, we celebrate this on Good Friday to the point where the, the nerves in his body were so damaged that blood was coming out of the pores of his body. And his response in that moment was this, not my will, but thine be done. So this morning, Lord, we come to the table we come to the table, Lord, and place ourselves before you. Lord, when anxiety strikes or when, when we see we're in things that we worry about or are concerned about, Lord, we place them at the altar before you. As your son demonstrated for us, Lord, it's not our will but yours that needs to be done. This relationship with a holy God, Lord, we, we stand before you and we give all reverence and all awe and all glory to you in all things. So while in crisis, while in concern, while in nervousness and anxiety and frustration, we still give it to you, Lord. And we ask you for the peace that you promise us that if you will guard our hearts, you will guard our minds and give us the peace of God and it does pass all understanding. There are some here, Lord, in this room that have gone through extreme crises and still, Lord, they praise you. Still, they give glory to you. How is that possible? Unless they have a peace which passes all understanding. We long for that, Lord, this morning. And so we do. We ask you, Lord, let not our will, let not my will be done, but thine be done. In Jesus' name.